0: Hello, and welcome to the Innovation Exchange, a bi-weekly podcast about innovation for innovators created by the Portulent Institute. Innovation Exchange amplifies emerging voices, transformative ideas, and creative solutions. Today, we're going to be learning a little bit more about the idea of open access innovation. And to that end, I'm really excited to introduce my guest, Heather Joseph. Heather is the executive director of Spark an organization that collaborates with stakeholders to democratize access to knowledge. Heather has spent the past two decades fighting for open access policies and practices. She is a leading voice for open access in U.S. federal agencies and international organizations like the U.N., the World Bank, UNESCO, and the World Health Organization. Thank you so much for joining me today, Heather.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Fantastic. I think I'll kick us off with a pretty simple question, or maybe a little bit more complicated than we'd like to think. What is open access innovation, or maybe just open access as a concept? And why is it so important?
1: Sure. So, the idea of open access is um, uh, pretty simple, actually. And I think it's something that people maybe take for granted as something that exists already. And it's the idea simply that anyone anywhere at any time should be able to um uh, get access to to find um online any information sort of basic knowledge that um you may need for your education your health and your well-being and the the um i think the thing that people don't realize is that so often a lot of that information is actually locked behind paywalls and the only way that you get to, to access basic knowledge is if you have the wherewithal to pay for it. So the idea of open access is to flip that default so that the, your expectation is you can, you can actually um, uh, get to and interact with you know, any kind of basic knowledge that you need um, at any time.
0: So to that end, openness should be the default. Openness should be the expectation, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. When we try to to explain to folks like why is the idea of open openness or open access so important, we we will will kind of use this analogy. Imagine if you're walking onto a college or a university campus or into a research lab, right, for the first time. Your expectation should be that you're going to share openly share. The results of what you find out in your research or the things that you're learning or your teaching materials unless or until somebody gives you a compelling reason not to share it and the reality today is that the opposite exists right the expectation is that you kind of hold these things tight unless somebody says to you hey you know this would be a really good idea to make this available to the whole world so it's almost at its core a a culture shift, a mindset shift, to move from knowledge is something that you hoard and hold close to knowledge is something that is best shared freely with everyone.
0: That is a fantastic analogy. Taking it a step further, a lot of our work at Portulans focuses on benchmarking economies in terms of their performance and innovation. And what we found by analyzing the data year on year is that the most innovative economies are the ones that prioritize open access, open data, open knowledge. What does this openness mean for innovation?
1: I think at its core, um, another sort of common sense aspect of openness is the, the more easily people can get to your data, the information that you're generating, the more minds you have. At work on that information, the more minds you have at work, the, the 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 faster people can make new discoveries, new connections. The more openly and freely you share what you're learning, the easier it is for people to build on it. And it you know it goes back to the the notion that um, knowledge is cumulative, right? In uh, 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 knowledge, innovation only advances when you can see what other people are doing. And build on it. The more freely and f- the more freely you can do that, the more openly you can do that, the faster and sort of the broader uh, discoveries and changes can happen.
0: I mean, speaking of cumulative knowledge, you have had such an interesting and diverse career. Whether it's at the U.S. you know domestic level with federal agencies or in international multilateral fora. Throughout your career, what's the most exciting example of open access innovation you've either witnessed or worked on?
1: I, I mean, I think there's two answers to that. The most exciting thing for me, sort of the most exciting moment, was um in uh, about two thousand and seven, we the idea of open access has been around since uh, two thousand and about two thousand and one. And so for the first you know five, six years of my career, the my job was really to try to explain this concept, right? That this was something that was possible, and then it's really possible um, in a new way because we have this fantastic, you know, open communication tool in the internet, right? That 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 we could do things that we couldn't do in the past. Um, and as you can imagine, that was sort of met with skepticism at first and cynicism to some degree. Uh, But the first really big step forward was when the National Institutes of Health, which is the largest funder um, of biomedical research here in the United States, uh, kind of looked at that idea and said, yeah, you know what, we think that that's actually the way that we should be working. And they were amenable to actually um, moving forward with a policy change that anybody, any um, scientist that agreed to take uh, money to do research um, on, you know, really important health and wellness issues from the NIH needed to start to think about um, having to share the articles and the data that resulted from that work freely. And the idea that, you know, a large federal agency and national government body would embrace this concept was, I think, one of the most exciting exciting things that i've I'd seen early in uh, in the open access movement
0: that must have been incredibly exciting particularly in the earlier days of the open movement
1: it's kind of fantastic when you work on something that people dismiss initially and then you know it it takes a lot of legwork and a lot of um, a large community of folks you know kind of coming on board and kind of being dogged about making sure that you're um, data-driven in the message, that you're credible, that you have good examples about what can happen. And when it actually takes root, it's kind of amazing to see.
0: And global coalitions like Spark have been key in this fight for, and to quote your motto, more than a read-only world. Can you tell us a little bit about your work at Spark?
1: Yeah. So Spark is actually, um, has its roots in the um, college and university library community, which is probably not surprising, as uh, librarians' roles are—you know—a big part of librarians' roles are to make sure that folks can get access to, you know, the latest, the best uh, information that they want. Um, and the the kind of thing that Spark does that that took it a step further was that we want people to be able, despite the name open access, not just to be able to get to and read information, particularly you know, scientific information, research outputs um, online. But we want to make sure that that information is as useful as possible in the digital environment. So um, one of the, the, the ways to kind of think about the concept of open access is that uh, the, the, at its core, the definition is the ability to immediately and freely access uh, something like a digital article coupled with the rights to use that digital article fully in the digital environment. So we're really in an age of machine learning, artificial intelligence, computational analysis of, of materials. And every piece of a, you know, an article online is a piece of digital data. So we want to essentially enable computers as a category of readers as well as people so that the full value of um, a, a digital article or, or you know, piece of information can be um, unlocked.
0: Have you found that the you know, emerging technologies of the fourth industrial revolution, so we're talking about big data, AI, blockchain, have they disrupted Open access, positively, negatively, has it been a balance? There, you know,
1: there's pros and cons, right? As as always with, especially with you know emerging tech, I would say it's been more upside than downside for open access. And you know, one example that that I'd give is think about what's happening right now with COVID nineteen. You know, as soon as the um, uh, the virus was identified, one of the first things that scientists rushed to do was to sequence the genome. And the genome of that virus obviously is a uh, a digital sequence. They immediately shared it openly, right? They turned it into open data in order for not just people to look at it, but so that computational technology could be used on it to compare it to other viruses that were known, right? An enormous aspect of us being able to make progress in something like the fight against a pandemic, when it's a race against time, is to be able to leverage um, technologies like machine learning and AI. And and, what we've seen is the the assistance that that brought to the table in the fight against COVID has really helped hasten progress towards identifying viable vaccines and uh, uh, therapeutics and treatments for COVID.
0: And thinking about the fight for open access, and as you mentioned, also content relevance more generally, how has the COVID crisis kind of changed the terms of this fight, or maybe even the urgency of this fight?
1: So it's changed it in two ways. I think we saw um, also right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, uh, the, um, I think a great illustration of how some folks take for granted that basic scientific knowledge or information is available to them to do these kinds of things, these kinds of, uh, you know, sort of large scale um, computational efforts or, or um, well, large scale computational efforts, we'll say. When COVID hit, one of the, the things that happened was science ministers from um, 12 countries, including the US, um, Brazil, uh, European countries, got together and realized that that wasn't the case, right? What they were looking for was, how do we get our hands on essentially every paper that's related to the coronavirus that's out there, right? Most of these papers are digital. How can we kind of collect these, put them in a database so we've got them and start working on them as quickly as possible? And they realized most of those papers were not uh, a openly available for them to get, and B even if they could get them, they didn't have the rights to do any kind of text and data mining on it. So we actually at the beginning of the coronavirus had to kind of take time out and go publisher to publisher and ask for permission to get articles and create um, a, a database of of uh, of COVID papers. Once, so that was you know that's I think a great illustration of. We really need to have this as the default, right? There's no time to waste when you know you're you're faced with a massive public health emergency. The upside uh, of this was that once that de- that database of openly available scientific articles was put together, um, a subset of that is hosted at the uh, National Institutes of Health. Since that subset's been put together, it's been downloaded over 100 million times and used for machine learning. So it's really kind of put into sharp relief the fact that there's a real need for uh, more consistent, open sharing of knowledge, and that once you do it, the upside is huge.
0: 100 million times. Yeah. That is it's fantastic good. and kind of incomprehensible in a way.
1: It's it's phenomenal to think about that pent-up demand, right? Like a lot of times people, initially early in, in the sort of um, uh, fight for open, if you will, one of the most common things that we heard was a lot of the stuff that you're talking about will only make sense to a scientist or pe- will people really want to read or use... A you know a, a a scientific article like who really cares? We found two things right. One, as I just described, scientists can use this these this material in ways we can we had only begun to imagine. And second, one of the other things that we found on the you know why does it matter to me front is that um, the access of open access papers, particularly like biomedical papers, papers about. Uh, diseases or health conditions um, tend to be used incredibly frequently by every, you know you and I, everyday people. Because the first thing that happens when you or someone in your family, uh, in general, is you know facing a new health condition, is you pop online and you want to find out the latest about it. And if you can't understand it, what we see that people do frequently is they'll take the article to their doctor or you know healthcare provider and ask them. Is this something I should know about? Is this something that you know about? So it really has individual impact on you and I, as well as, you know, sort of this larger scientific benefit as well.
0: So it's clear then that the demand is there and there really is no time to waste with open access.
1: I agree with that. Yes. (laughs)
0: Um, I think just to, you know, wrap things up, this year, similarly to last year, is going to pose a wide variety of opportunities and also obstacles to this idea of open access innovation. Um, in your opinion and your experience, where are the most important conversations going to be happening? Or where should they be
1: happening? And the, I think the most important conversations are those that policymakers are having, um policymakers particularly uh, are particularly important because in general they tend to kind of hold the purse strings for um, how science education um, basic research uh, you know public education is is funded and they're really beginning to understand because of the impact of covid on academic institutions and research facilities as well as public health that there is value in changing the default, um, and I think there's there's sort of two two levels of of policymakers that that we're watching closely. One are I mean policymakers maybe in a, a, a small p sense, and those are the leaders of um, universities and colleges who recognize that when they were forced to go online um, and online only in most in many cases during the pandemic, the need for open of openly available resources that, that teachers, professors, students could use, like open textbooks, courseware, as well as basic you know, research articles became critical for the continuity of operations of, of higher education. And they're beginning to think, how can we work these things into the fabric of um, uh, our higher ed institutions? and because so much research is nested in those institutions it's a really it's a really important um place for progress to be made and the other is you know in places like um the US government is talking about should we have a blanket policy to change this to make this the default across the US the European Union has already moved in that direction so in some senses we're we're sitting a little bit behind here in the US um but i think the, the the signposts that um, uh, the COVID uh, crisis really raised are so hard to ignore uh, that um, I'm, I'm more optimistic than I've been that we'll actually make good progress this year.
0: I think optimism is a good note to leave this at. Heather, thank you so much for your time today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: You can follow Heather's work on the Spark website at sparkopen.org. Keep an eye out for their resources, projects, policy, news and upcoming events, particularly relating to equity and meaningful participation in open access innovation. Next time. We learn more about reconstructing open innovation in highly regulated spaces with a focus on the biomedical research industry.